All right, welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. You'll notice that our audio is a little different today. You will not hear the beautiful sounds of downtown Uncorked in historic downtown Bryan. And I got all that out finally, Greg, without you needing to help me. Yeah. <laughs> it's only taken nope. two seasons. <laughs> no, no, no clinking glasses on this podcast. We are, we are uh, recording from our offices on the, on the, uh, as Thanksgiving break approaches. And but we did want to, there's been so much going on in the news and the hot takes earlier in the semester seem to be well received. So there's a few things going on and uh, Greg and I have been doing arguably a lot of deferring to our guests lately. So you're going to hear a lot from us today. Um, and we have a couple topics uh, laid out for you. But before we get there, um, I just want to throw a couple of end of semester things out your way. We have two more live recordings at Downtown Uncorked. Uh, in historic downtown Bryan. Those will be on December 3rd. Uh, and our expected guest that evening is Pro Professor Kent Portney, who's a good friend of ours and has visited up with us on the podcast before. So we're hoping to have him again. And then on December 10th, we'll have Ambassador Larry Knapper, who will be joining us to talk about uh, some more perspective to actually some of the topics we're going to be delving in today um, related to impeachment. Well, but I think Larry, uh, you know, who was a former U.S. ambassador to Latvia and Kazakhstan and a, an old Russia hand, I think he's going to talk more about Ukraine itself. I mean, what's the background? What was going on in Ukraine? How did Ukraine get involved in American domestic politics? But I think Larry wants to, wants to focus on his expertise, which is Ukraine and American foreign policy toward Ukraine. So it'll, it'll tangentially work into the impeachment thing. But, but you and I, I think, today are going to go right hot into the domestic politics yeah. of the country. It's been too long. It's been it too has. Long. Hey, does, does Larry know uh, Ivanovich? Yes, knows her well. Interesting. Okay, so we'll just jump right in. Those are the two recordings we have coming up. Please come join us. We've had fun uh, doing it with you uh, live and in person. We'll take your questions there if, you're, if you happen to be with us. So come round down the semester with us. Holiday right. season at Downtown Uncorked. Yes, and we'll be starting at uh, 6 p.m. for both 6 p.m. Or, no, with Ambassador Napper, we're doing one hour yeah. earlier. We're going to go an hour earlier for Ambassador Napper because classes are done, 5 o'clock. So 6 p.m. on the 3rd and 5 p.m. on the 10th. Yep. Okay, that's enough, of, that's enough of front end stuff, Greg. What is going on? So I was a little bit out of touch last week following along some headlines, and I was keeping up with the impeachment hearings. But uh, as I was saying to you earlier, I um, – <laughs> I hadn't watched any of the video and I took the, some time today in preparation for today and watched some of the testimony, uh, Fiona Hills, Ivanovich's, uh, 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 Blinman's, um, and uh, you know, they paint a pretty damning picture and these are career public servants. They're people who have been serving at the highest level of the government for, I mean, in, in some of these people's cases, 30 plus years, which is Ivanovich's case. Um, served under Democrats and Republicans, uh, highly celebrated in general, highly respected. And, you know, throughout the impeachment hearings, they had a lot of damning things to say about um, these kind of back channel approaches that uh, Rudy Giuliani at the direction of the president um, played in, in influencing things in Ukraine and holding up aid. And there's all kinds of um, kind of things for us to to get into, but before we do that, the thing about this that's really stuck with me is these are career public servants mostly, people that we train at the Bush School. And, you know, the president went to Twitter against a number of these people, essentially with implicit threats and smear campaigns, 
against, you know, career-long public servants. And all I can, I mean, I don't know a ton of ambassadors. I know Ambassador Napper, but I, I, we both worked with Ambassador Crocker, and um, I've known him for some time. And, I, and all I could kind of think about is, is him coming out doing his job and, say, during, you know, during Iraq and, you know, George W. getting out there and just running a smear cane against him and trying to run him out of town. I mean, this stuff seems really – uh, wild and outside of the realm of anything that we've experienced. And so maybe you could give me a little bit of context for, for your takeaway just on, on this first part. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented. Uh, administrations have hung ambassadors out to dry in the past when they're looking for scapegoats. Uh, I, I, the thing that the episode that, that comes most directly to my mind is our hero, actually, George H.W. Bush. Uh, after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, there was an effort to kind of blame the U.S. ambassador in Iraq for passing, you know, uh, conflicting signals to Saddam Hussein. That's not why Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait. But but uh, but the ambassador who was named April Glassby was kind of hung out to dry by by. Uh, by James A. Baker III, the Secretary of State, who, you know, I, I mean, I think James A. Baker III is the greatest Secretary of State since, since uh, really since Dean Acheson and General Marshall at the end of World War II. I mean, this is a guy who got things done. But he was also, a, you know, elbows out political operator. I, I do think the way the administration, the Trump administration treated Ambassador Yovanovitch was a little different uh, in that they weren't blaming her for anything they were saying that she, well, they were blaming her for being anti-Trump. They weren't saying she didn't do her job right. She just, they just kind of put out things that said, oh, she was bad news, bad things happened, the Ukrainians didn't like her. And in fact, there was no crisis in U.S.-Ukrainian relations. There was an effort by the Trump administration to, uh, you know, leverage this far, this foreign military aid into getting some political help from the, from President Zelensky. It's so it's not like they were looking to to offload responsibility on Yovanovitch. They were looking to kind of isolate and get rid of her, so they could do these back channel things without anybody. What they hoped anybody blowing whistles on them. Well, you know, whistles got blown. But it's interesting that you mentioned that you you watched the testimony of the career people. Ivanovich and, and Fiona Hill and the, the younger Foreign Service officer, whose name I forget, who, who testified with Fiona Hill, the one who was at the dinner table with Ambassador Sondland uh, when he got the call from President Trump. But you didn't watch Sondland, who I think, who I think might be the most important witness here, because the, the Republican counterattack on Ivanovich and Hill is that, well, you were never in the room with Trump. The president never spoke to you. You don't know exactly what the president was thinking when he did these things. But Sondland did talk to the president. Yeah. And, and he openly said that there was a quid pro quo. His answer was yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. he, yes. He, he, he asked himself the question in his opening statement. Could say it. Was there a quid pro quo? <laughs> yes. Now, he said there was a quid pro quo for the, for the White House uh, call and a White House meeting. He didn't say there was a quid pro quo for the aid. But I know my read of all of this uh, is that if you're a defender of the president, 
you're, you're arguing two things that are contradictory. And in the end, you got to pick one, right? Some defenders of the president are arguing, well, the president had a perfect right to do this because Ukraine was incredibly corrupt and Joe Biden and his son are incredibly corrupt. And we had to look into corruption in order to, you know, make sure that our aid was being used in a proper way. Uh, that's a that's a tough one, and that the only thing that the president seemed to care about was the Bidens, not other corruption. And why go Ukraine. around your own diplomats and your State Department if that's right? The right, exactly. Uh, then the other argument is these diplomats like Sondland and Rudy Giuliani. Well, these not well. Sondland's a diplomat, but not has nothing to do with Ukraine. He was ambassador to the EU. Ukraine's not a member of the EU, but he was a confidant and personal contact of the president. And the president basically said, you take this over with Volcker and, and Governor Perry. Uh, you're the three amigos. And, and you deal with Rudy Giuliani and get, get this thing done with Ukraine. So Sondland was the one who actually had conversations with the president. And he's the one who said, quid pro quo. Now, the second line of defense is these guys were rogues. Giuliani and Sondland and Perry and Volcker, they were off on their own. I think that's a hard case to make. I think it's a hard case to make. Uh, but since we, we we're not going to get testimony from Mick Mulvaney or John Bolton or, or uh, Secretary Pompeo, we're not going to get people who maybe are willing to say, oh, I spoke directly to the president. And he said, yeah, let's get that dirt on Biden. Let's get that CrowdStrike stuff. But if you look at the memorandum of the, of, of the conversation with Zelensky, it's all in there. <laughs> the president asking him about CrowdStrike, the president asking him about, uh, about Biden. So it, 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 there, I think that right now the defenders of the president are throwing everything they can up against the wall and let, seeing what sticks. Yeah, one of the things that stuck with me too that they don't strike me as arguments. So some of this, I, it was hard for me to to watch. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to check in and out sometimes of of a lot of news consumption, and so I, you know, I just watched highlights, not commentary, yeah. in preparation for today. And you know, Nunez um, seems to kind of be trying to lead the counterattack, at least on the in the in, in the impeachment hearings. And <laughs> he does such a bad job if, if you're trying to have like a, like a rational argument, right? If you're trying to say, here's our laid out defense, here's why, you know, the president's, these things are untrue about him. And he doesn't even, even try to do that, at least in, the, in, the, in what I've seen. It's more of, this is just a circus because we know it's a circus and it's a, um, it's a circus. And right, it's a circus because it's a circus. Because it's a circus, right? And and then, you know, the, the thing that's, that's breaking today, I guess, was that one of Giuliani's associates who's been in, uh, under arrest is willing to testify that Nunez is kind of part of it as well, um, was going to go, go into he, Ukraine to look. Yeah, that he had a meeting with one of these uh, Ukrainian prosecutors who was involved in all of this. Who knows? I mean, Clearly, the strategy on Republicans on the committee was not to try to convince. I think it wasn't to try to convince the undecideds. I'm not sure there are undecideds. It was to give talking points to those who want to support the president. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that, that they were very successful at doing that. I mean, I haven't seen any public opinion polls that show marked change in, in the public's view of impeachment and conviction. Uh, it seems to me that people are pretty dug in. I think one of the differences between this investigation and the Nixon investigation, which led not to an impeachment, but to the resignation of the president in the face of what would have been impeachment and conviction, I think one of the differences, we had the smoking gun at the beginning. We had the transcript of the, not the transcript, but the memorandum of the call. Yeah. You know, in the Nixon case, it, it, it built and built and built and built and built. And then you had the tape where the president was on the tape basically saying, let's do this, right? Uh, in terms of the Watergate breaking. Uh, we had that at the beginning and now it's all somewhat anticlimactic. I don't know. Maybe John Bolton will spill, but he doesn't seem like it. He seems like he's more interested in, in reaping uh, that $2 million advance for the book he's going to write about his uh, misadventures in the Trump administration. But I, 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 I'm not sure. I think that if you were disposed to think that what the president did was wrong vis-a-vis Ukraine, you saw these hearings and you said, yep, now I know it was wrong. And I think if you were disposed to say, well, you know, they don't really have anything solid on the president, you would have said, well, you know, it's a bunch of hearsay and all these people. But, you know, after a while, the people on the ground, the people doing the diplomacy, the people who are hearing the phone calls, the, you know, if they all think that, that it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Yeah, I uh, so I've had the same response uh, to that as you have, which is I've kind of followed along some polls, and uh, if any, if anything, uh, independents from the polls I've seen lately are breaking more against impeachment mm-hmm. and in, in favor of it. And um, you know, <laughs> but it does, you know, one thing you and I were just kind of talking about as we as we were getting ready for to talk about this is, is it feels like to me sometimes I'm in an, an alternate reality, right? I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching testimony from leading ambassadors and leading people within our own government who are career public servants, painting this, you know, whether even quid pro quo uh, proven or not, you just listen to their stories about kind of how this played out and the stuff that's not even disputed um, from the Republicans. And it's terrifying. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's behavior that's, you know, certainly unpresidential and, but, but you know, really, makes you if you makes you question kind of where all the loyalties lie in these situations mm. this was one of the more things fiona hill said right which was yeah. like who benefits who benefits from this situation and how horrible is it that you know foreign influences and private interests were able to essentially sack an ambassador whose mission was anti-corruption in ukraine and you know that, that feels like a, a pretty serious uh hold on on decision making and then when you know you kind of watch Nunez kind of making the circus himself um right there right next to um uh, Schiff it, it it feels like you know um like there's a strong foothold in the the um kind of the decision making process for which way the state goes that these influences are are super per- pervasive like it's yeah. not at the edges that it's um that it's super pervasive in how the Trump administration does business. So 
I, yeah, I mean, I think the Trump administration does business in all sorts of ways that are highly irregular. And, 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 but I don't want to focus too much on him using kind of special envoys and secret, uh, you know, lots of presidents have done that. Mm -hmm. It's the purpose for which it's being used, right? Henry Kissinger uh, didn't inform the State Department before he went to China on that secret trip. Yeah. Now he took great pains to keep it secret from everybody in the government. But he was doing it at the president's behest to further an, a national security interest. Whether you agree or disagree, an opening to China was a national security interest. It wasn't about, you know, getting dirt on, on, on George McGovern, uh, you know, or Edmund Muskie for the 1972 election. Yeah. And, and, and that seems to me to be the, the core difference here is, is not the fact that the president went outside the normal channels on a foreign policy issue. Sometimes presidents do that. But for the, what was the purpose for which it was done? And it, it, it's very hard for me to look at the accumulation of the evidence and say that this was done because of a general uh, uh, American foreign policy worry about corruption in Ukraine. This was done in order to try to uh, extract personal political advantage for the president, directly going against stated American policy of supporting the Ukrainian government in its, its war with the Russian intervention in Ukraine. Yeah, well, another, another piece that's come out of this uh, that um, uh, I believe it was Fiona Hill addressed, um, but is also the shifting of the blame of yeah. intervention in US elections that the, you know, all reports in, from our own intelligence community and from international kind of watch organizations, I mean, the evidence is kind of written on the wall, but that Russia had attempted to uh, interfere in the U.S. elections. This isn't kind of disputed. It has done this in Ukraine, has done this in lots of places in the world. And then- Apparently you know, it did it in Great Britain on the Brexit referendum. Yep. And then sort of one of the narratives coming out of the Republican Party was, oh, no, no, it's, it's Ukraine. Ukraine was doing this. Yeah, I mean, I- you know, and that's straight out of kind of Republican, uh, that's straight out of R Russian uh, intelligence servants agencies spreading fabrications to, 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 to get the Republican Party to say them out loud and during the impeachment hearings. Absolutely. And I, I thought that was one of Fiona Hill's best points. Yeah. Is that, you know, when you, when you as a member of Congress talk about Ukraine, Ukrainian intervention in the 26th election, you are parroting Russian talking points. Even people within the administration told the president, uh, his, his own Homeland Security advisor in the White House, former Homeland Security, well, we know why he's former now, former Homeland Security advisor in the White House said, sir, this is a, this is a fabrication. This is, there is no evidence that Ukraine was involved in any of this stuff, the server, the emails, any of it. And yet, uh, it has been adopted as a talking point for domestic political purposes. And that, that might be the most dispiriting thing. Not just that the president does it, but that so many members of Congress are willing to, to do it, even though their own committees, all right, the Senate Intelligence Committee, even the House Intelligence Committee, came out with reports that said Russia intervened in, in the 2016 election. Now, Nunez, uh, you know, from, from the, the, the chair, said, well, of course, yes, just because we say Russia inter intervened, that doesn't mean Ukraine didn't. 
but it's a reach. It's a reach. So I can go on this on and on on this. Right, but but I mean, this. let's zoom out and talk about kind of the politics of it. Right. Uh, the bottom line here is that the, you know there, unless something dramatically different happens, there's not going to be 67 votes in the Senate to convict the president. Right. I, I would be I would be amazed if five Republicans voted to convict on any article. Right. Maybe Mitt Romney, maybe Susan Collins, because she's in a tough reelection, maybe Cory Gardner from Colorado, because he's in a tough reelection. And then I don't know, uh, you know, Ben Sass or maybe somebody like uh, uh, Lamar Alexander, who's retiring. But nobody's giving any any indication. I, you know. I'd be amazed if, if as many as five voted to convict on any article, and, and it's probably going to be, if any, one or two. So, you know, we, we go to 2020, and then the question is, does this, uh, you know, the president being impeached but acquitted, does this help him politically or hurt him politically? You know, Bill Clinton impeached, acquitted in 1998 with quite a few Republican votes coming over. Right on one of the counts, five Republicans voted to acquit. On another of the accounts, uh, the, the counts against Bill Clinton, ten Republicans voted to acquit. And so, uh, I don't think there was a majority for uh, for conviction on either of those. Not not you know not even talking about two thirds. I don't think there was a simple majority. It helped Bill Clinton. It helped the Republicans in the '98 uh, congressional elections. So I, I, we're, we're in uncharted territory. This is the first time a president has ever been impeached who then has run for re-election. Uh, and my guess is that Democrats think that this will mobilize their base. I don't think the president's base needs to be mobilized. It's already mobilized. And um, we'll see who gets their people to the polls. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, as uh, we've done a you and I have now had this conversation, I think, even publicly once or twice. Um, and I think I share your, uh, I guess, realism. I, I, I want to say pessimism, but it, it doesn't feel like pessimism. But, I, you know, I think I, I sort of still imagine that the House will pass a couple resolutions and you have a couple of defectors. Uh, so, that, I mean, that'll be, you'll be impeached and then you'll have a couple of defectors in the Senate. But it is really hard to imagine um, any circumstance under which you get 67 senators um, and, um, so yeah, it will be, it'll be interesting to see what it does for the election. I think, um, which I think will take us nicely into our next point and then we can come yep. back to, uh, impeachment if we, if we want to end on some rosy topics. <laughs> um, but, uh, we've had two new democratic candidates come out recently. There's been some shifting around in the polls as well. I wanted to start by, uh, you know, when you and I were discussing this, we, we mentioned that there were a couple of, uh, late entrants. And uh, one of them, let's see if I can, uh, I had a fun article pulled up over on it, and now I think I let it go. But um, uh, one of the new, uh, uh, one of the new Democratic candidates, Patrick, held a, an event at Morehouse. Did you see this? No. He held an event at Morehouse, an announced event, was going to hold an announced event at Morehouse. Uh, while some of the other candidates were having, um, I think maybe it was when the debate was going oh, on. Debate, or, yeah, the debate this week, yeah. And only two people showed in the audience. Oh, my God. And they canceled the event because only two people showed. Uh, I mean, Deval Patrick is, 
which no, is so was, bad. He was a successful governor of Massachusetts, uh, an African-American candidate. Uh, you could see why he would want to try to go to Morehouse and draw a crowd. But I, I think the bottom line for both him and Mike Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, is you got to start earlier and earlier in these campaigns and, and getting in two months before the Iowa caucuses is just not going to, it's not going to get it done. Yeah. It seems like it's too late in the narrative. Um, I mean, exactly. And, and, you know, people have started to pick mm -hmm. and, and, you know, obviously they both thought Biden was going to collapse. Everybody thinks Biden's going to collapse, but he's, he's, come back to the pack, but he hasn't collapsed. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't know, Deval Patrick, like, so Michael Bloomberg's theory is I don't have to do Iowa, I don't have to do New Hampshire. I'll come in at Super Tuesday. I don't even think I, he's gonna do South Carolina and Nevada, right? He'll come in on Super Tuesday and, uh, and, then, and then he'll try to use, uh, you know, na nationwide advertising to win. But, and look, I, I don't dislike Michael Bloomberg. I think he would be a fine president. And if he gets a nomination, I'm certainly going to vote for him rather than President Trump. But, I, you know, we know that the candidate with the most money doesn't always win the election. If, 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 if that were the case, right, it would have been President Hillary Clinton, right, uh, defeating Governor Jeb Bush, who would have gotten the Republican nomination last time because he had the most money at the outset. Yeah. So I, I, it, it's hard for me to see Bloomberg's path to victory. Yeah, maybe it's some, um, he might could be a reasonable VP choice as like a centrist oh, business oh, no, person. No. no, you don't think so? Michael Bloomberg is not going to be anybody's vice president. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> this is one of the 10 richest men in the world. Yeah, good point. <laughs> He's not going to be anybody's vice president. Deval Patrick could be somebody's vice president. Although, why would you pick a, a guy from Massachusetts, which is the most reliably Democratic state or one of the most reliably Democratic states? But yeah, no, Michael Bloomberg isn't going to be anybody's vice president. You can, you can, I'll bet all of Bloomberg's money on that. <laughs> He's yeah. worth $50 billion, you know. It's about as likely as Trump ever having been a VP. <laughs> it, it, it's, about, it's about as likely as Trump having $50 billion, you know. <laughs> Well, so, you know, I think that then leaves us with four kind of candidates leading the pack, at least currently. Um, uh, at least, I mean, we'll see if Bloomberg is able to break through in the top four, and, and maybe he will. There hasn't been enough time really to determine that. Um, but uh, it looks like there's four leading the pack. We have Biden, and we have Warren, and we have Buttigieg, and we have, who is it? Bernie Sanders. Bernie. There we go. How did I forget about Bernie? Um, so, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one thing that this suggests to me is that this primary uh, thing might go on a little ways because when you look at the um, polls, you know, nobody's coming in more than about 25, 30% these days. So, you know, before we talk about which candidate, I mean, this could be really, this could be really ugly. And, um, you know, for if, if you're hoping that the Democrats can pull together a kind of a unified front to go against um, uh, Trump, then a long, bloody,
primary season is not what you're hoping for. And given the different kind of visions for America that are coming up with some of these campaigns, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine that they might just, uh, you know, turn over. You know, it's hard to imagine that Bernie Sanders is going to throw his support behind Joe Biden early in this process, right? Uh, it just uh, it doesn't seem like a, a likely outcome. So I think this is going to get drawn out and bloody and ugly. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be ugly, but I don't know if it's going to be drawn out. Okay. Uh, I, I think that there's a natural process of whittling down in those early elect in those early states, and uh, you know what looks like a huge. You know, I, we just have to think back to 2016. How many Republicans were there? 16 at one point running. Mm -hmm. They got whittled down real quick to to Ted Cruz and and John Kasich and and uh, Donald Trump and. It, it was pretty clear Donald Trump was going to win pretty early, it seemed to me. Yeah, uh, yeah that's true. And I, so I'm going to discount Michael Bloomberg. He, he's the only wild card in this race, as far as I can tell. But, you know, a 77-year-old billionaire just doesn't seem to catch the zeitgeist of the Democratic Party these Not days. Not this moment in time, anyways. I, so I, I, I just don't, again, this is no knock on Michael Bloomberg, who I think is, you know, really smart, did a fine job as mayor of New York. You can argue about some of the things he did, but that he ran the city well. The city's bigger than any but, I think, 10 or 12 states in terms of its population. Uh, and and uh, I think he would be a good president. But I just don't think that, that he's going to get the nomination of the Democratic Party. So, so take the top four. Maybe Amy, Amy Klobuchar, if she does well in Iowa, but I don't see her having that many legs. Uh, they all have really serious uh, uh, negatives about them. And maybe this is just me being the pessimist because I, I would like to see President Trump defeated at the polls, but Bernie Sanders, old, socialist, uh, Medicare for all, which polls horribly, as we know. Yep. Add in the fact that he's Jewish, which I don't think, it, 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 it's not the, the impediment it would be to being elected president even 30 years ago, but I don't think it's gonna be a help either. Mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth Warren, Medicare for all. I mean, I think that we saw some of her poll numbers come back after she and you know put out her Medicare for all plan, and now she's tried to walk it back and said, "Well, we'll do it in stages." Blah blah blah. That kind of eats away at her. You know, I'm a truth teller. I've got a plan for that. Uh, and the misogyny of of the Amer of at least parts of the American electorate that we saw in 2016 run against her. Uh, she's. I think she's a very impressive person, but let's face it, in, in Massachusetts politics, she ran behind Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. right? Her 2018 performance in her reelection campaign for the Senate uh, did less well in terms of percentage of vote than Hillary Clinton did in Massachusetts. Uh, so when was the last time a New England liberal got elected president? Do you know? It was before you were born. <laughs> Definitely before I was born, yeah. <laughs> it was John F. Kennedy. I was born. I was two years old. <laughs> and guess what? He ran to the right of Nixon yeah. on all sorts of issues, particularly foreign policy. 
you know, we've had New England liberals nominated and running in primaries since then, and none of them have done well. Just ask Michael Dukakis and John Kerry. Yep. Right? President Dukakis, remember him? No, because he was not president. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we should be happy about that because our hero, George H.W. Bush, defeated him for the presidency. Yep. But, uh, so that's what Warren has the New England liberal problem. Pete Buttigieg, 37 years old, the only public office he's held is mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Yep. Clearly does not excite, at least so far, one of the major constituencies of the Democratic Party, which is African-American voters. It was unenthusiastic turnout on the African, in the African-American community that one can argue cost Hillary Clinton Michigan and Pennsylvania, right? Uh, if she had been able to turn out African-Americans in the same percentages as Barack Obama, you know, they voted for her, but they just didn't turn out in numbers. Yeah. And you can understand why she would have trouble exciting an African-American base as much as Barack Obama did. But still, uh, Pete Buttigieg doesn't seem to be somebody who has those connections. And, of course, he has his own problems in South Bend with the policing incidents in the African-American community. there. And I don't know if you've read this in the papers, but he's gay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, again, I, the fact that he's a major part, that he's a serious major party candidate for president shows that the, that American public opinion has changed on the issue of sexual orientation. But has it changed so much that a gay man can get elected president? I don't know. Now, I, I wasn't sure a black man could get elected president and Barack Obama got elected. So maybe I'm underselling the American public, but I worry about that. And then Joe Biden, and I'll stop filibustering after this. But right, go ahead, yeah. I want to hear your analysis, then I can respond. <laughs> Joe Biden, I, I grew up with Joe Biden, uh, believe it or not. Uh, I, I grew up in Delaware. I remember Joe Biden's first campaign in 72. He was elected to the Senate. It was miraculous that he won. Uh, he, he, he beat a guy who had never lost election in Delaware in wow. the face of the Nixon landslide in 1972. He campaigned the hell out of this. He's a great retail campaigner. But the presidency is not a retail campaign. Yeah. And he is in his, I forget whether he's 76 or 77, but he's old. Yeah. And he's lost a bit on his fastball. There's just no question about that. Uh, and, you know, God help me. I, I hope I'm in as good a shape as Joe Biden is when I'm 77. But I don't think that I'd be running for president of the United States. And I, I just worry about it. He's run twice when he was more energetic and, and more and younger and crashed and burned both times. So I, I worry. On the other hand, once some of these people start winning primaries, they're going to look a lot better. They're going to look a lot stronger. Yeah. Other people are going to come to them. At some point, Warren and Bernie are going to, one of the two is going to drop and the other one's going to get the support. I hope, I think, and I hope. Bernie's really stubborn. We saw that in 2016. But if he loses Iowa and New Hampshire to Warren, I think, I think he's got to think about what he's doing. Yeah. So this is all going to be really interesting. You know, I think that the field will be winnowed. By the time we get to Super Tuesday, I, pr I think there's only going to be three serious candidates. Don't ask me to guess who they are, but I think they'll, they'll I think they'll, well, I'll tell you who I think they are. I think they'll be, I think they'll be Warren. 
I think there'll be Biden. And I don't know if it's going to be Buttigieg or, or Bernie or uh, some dark horse like Amy Klobuchar or Mike Bloomberg. I don't know. But I think that by the time we get to Super Tuesday, I think we'll be down to three candidates, three serious candidates. One, one thing that you said that, um, that made me um, think about kind of doing analysis this early in the stage is, you know, in, uh, leading up to the 2016 election this far out, I think the conversation would have revolved around Jeb Bush and his weaknesses and Marco Rubio up and coming and Trump's out there being kind of crazy and what a weird no chance. Remember all the talk about his ceiling? His ceiling yep. was going to be 10%, then his ceiling was going to be 15%. Oh, yeah. That must only be 5% of the population. And those, were, those were really weak ceilings, probably like the ceilings in some Trump buildings. <laughs> yeah, I share some of your concern. I mean, I, um, I think, uh, you know, I have uh, friends that are Buttigieg fans. I think he seems to appeal to uh, younger millennials. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, I think he has a little bit of charisma. He's, uh, got a good uh, face for being a president and a campaign and a little young, little young face, young and youthful. That's kind of worked for Macron. I mean, he's a little bit younger than Macron, but that can kind of catch on, I think, and be like a generational thing. So, yeah. but I, I'm with you in that, you know, someone that's only been the mayor of, um, a town in Indiana, uh, South Bend, Indiana, I, I worry about, and I also worry about turnout among the group that supports the Democratic Party and the largest percentage numbers, which is uh, turnout from African Americans. So, um, and I, I just worry about him not being prepared. I mean, it's yeah. just, I, you know, so I worry about that with him. Um, and from an electability, I mean, going up against, um, going against Trump as kind of a young, um, kind of wearing his, uh, you know, being a, a gay man, um, and being open about that would be really interesting to um, see how that would play out in an American discourse under Trump. I, I imagine it would be awful, um, but it, there's a chance that it would like strike a moment for people to take the high road, um, given the change. When, when, was, when was the last time the Trump campaign took the high road? <laughs> Never. Um, ask, ask Ambassador Ivanovich about that. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and uh, I, I agree with you about Warren. You know, Warren hasn't had a lot of ton of executive experience. She, her numbers even in her own state underperformed Hillary Clinton, which is something you and I have talked about. Medicare for all um, is is kind of worrisome. I think she would be a reasonable um, president. I mean, I think she's a technocrat. Oh, yeah. I think she's a hard worker. She's super she's intelligent, uh, very bright, um, and I, you know, could be a, a fresh um, way of approaching the president presidency after. Um, some of the previous years, um, but I do think she has some favorability problems, and I think she, Medicare for all again doesn't uh, doesn't pull well. And to your point, I give a certain Bernie, which it's hard to imagine that a socialist can win, um, and Biden, who's kind of older and seems to be missing a few steps along along the way, um, in his you know kind of having a little pep in his step. Um, and I don't. There's all those kind of make me worry about how they'll uh, go up against Trump. But then on the other side, you know, it wouldn't take too many things to change for him to, I think, look weak in the general public's opinion. And some of these candidates start acting like reasonable humans on the campaign trail and seeing things that reminded us of former presidents and how nice that is to just not have the insanity. And maybe that will win over a bunch of uh, independence and, and uh, tamper support for Trump. But Right. I mean, and, and, you know, the great unanswered question here, 
and I don't think anybody can know this. We can only know it after the fact. Is this going to be a base mobilization election, or is this going to be a, a, a shift the shift the middle election? Right, shift those those suburban, especially female suburban voters who might have voted Trump in 2016. Right, and and where you go on this depends on what theory of the case you have. If you think that what you have to do is mobilize the base, then you want a Sanders or a Warren, I think. Or, or an African-American candidate like Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. Uh, if you want to mobile, if, you, if, if you're looking to, to, to switch some of those voters in those swing states in the, in, in the Midwest and in Pennsylvania, right, you, you take the strategy that, that the Democrats used to win congressional seats in these places in 2018, right? You, you, run, you run to the middle, you run moderates, you, you emphasize health care, but not Medicare for all. You emphasize Obamacare and, and gradual expansion of Obamacare benefits. And, and, and you, you basically say, let's get back to normal. And I don't know. I mean, we, this is, people are going to go on their gut on this, not because we have no evidence which of these, either of those strategies could win, right? You mobilize African-Americans, you hold the, the voters that Hillary had, you mobilize African-Americans more, you win. Right? You hold the voters that Hillary had and you switch just a couple of percentages in the suburbs of, of, of Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and you win. So I, I don't know which one will go. I mean, I think that the, 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 the less risky strategy is the second one, but they're both risky. <laughs> Well, and I think, you know, uh, so one of the ways in which you painted that was sort of a, re like a return to normalcy as a choice. And yeah. um, I think that's a nice kind of time. Work for Warren Harding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but what it made me think of was our next topic, which is worldwide protests. And the, the chance of any return to our sort of uh, normalcy um, seems to be under just general threat throughout the world. Um, I was uh, spending some time, as I mentioned earlier, preparing for today, and I started looking at some of the protests. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was a little kind of checked out from the news the last week, uh, taking some family time. And I, uh, when you said there was something going on in Bolivia, I was just, I had just not been caught up with what was going on in Bolivia. And then as I started looking around, um, which which wasn't in our previous, uh, our previous interaction about the podcast, but there's also in Colombia now. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the Americas, this is really what started kind of in Chile. And you, you heard, very, you hear very little bit about, very little about this in sort of um, most outlets, unless you go looking for it in the U.S. But you hear, you hear a little bit about Santiago. And then that was kind of it. And then, right. like I said, I, just following along headlines, I had not seen anything about Bolivia. I had not seen anything about uh, Colombia over the last few days. And so, and, and, and this you still is, have, and in the Americas, you still have protests in Nicaragua. Yeah, which I didn't even know about, right? And so this, um, this instability on our own continent um, is, 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 is bad uh, and worrisome. Um, and then you have um, stuff going on in Hong Kong, which we've talked about, and it's kind of been a little near and dear to my own heart after spending the summer in Taiwan and having a brief stopover in Hong Kong right before the protests started. And... Uh, knowing some Hong Kongers who are kind of experiencing uh, experiencing this as it's playing out, so that one's kind of 
stuck with me. We've talked about it a, a few times. And, um, you know, the recent thing there is the elections went way, way, way in favor of the uh, pro-democracy candidates, something like 90% or it was like a crazy number. And yeah, so, you know, this is yeah. forces for the, for, for the relatively powerless uh, local council elections. Yeah. And so, and then you have things going on in Lebanon and Iraq, and um, that might be better for you to kind of step in and give some context for those. So yeah, maybe do that. And then let's talk about maybe there's some themes across some of these, because that's been some of the speculation as well. Yeah, I, I mean, it, Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran. Uh, so, you know, when one thinks of all of these things, uh, you know, all together, one, you know, immediately flashes back to 2011, where in the Arab world, we had this contagion of protests, right? December of 2010, Tunisia, then Egypt, then Syria and Yemen and Bahrain and Libya, and right that, that became the what what at the time was optimistically called the Arab Spring. I don't see even within the Middle East itself. I don't see that kind of contagion, right? Uh, things are happening in Lebanon, things are happening in Iraq, and things are happening in Iran, but I don't see them as particularly connected in in the sense that oh, people in Iraq saw people in Lebanon demonstrating and they demonstrated, right? There were there were unique triggers to each of these. Uh, right in Lebanon, it was the, the, they said they were going to put a tax on WhatsApp, mm -hmm. uh, the the phone app. Mm -hmm. In in Iran, it was a major increase in the price of of gasoline at the pump, fifty percent. Right, and in Iraq, it was it, it, it was uh, basically I think accusations of corruption that had been surfacing within the within the government, uh, not 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 as explicit an economic spur as. Lebanon and Iran, but what unites them with 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 uh, you know uh, the Americas and Hong Kong? I I couldn't even say that it's economics, right? Because in Hong Kong, it seems to me that that you know that's a place that does okay economically, right? It seems that in Hong Kong, it's a it's political rights that people are in the streets for, not economic, uh, you know, greater economic gains. Uh, in Bolivia, right? It, it was uh, President Morales, uh, you know, going beyond the two-term limit, having changed the constitution, and and apparently having run a uh, at least a questionable election. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that brought people in the streets. In Chile, it seems to be more directly economic, but but it seems like to some extent those those protests got taken over by by. Uh, you know, more anarchist, radical. I mean, when you go in and you trash the subway, mm -hmm. you're not you're not hurting rich people when you trash the subway, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so I I don't know if we can link them together in any kind of causal chain. Can we say this is the 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 far echoes of the financial crisis of 0809? I don't know. We're we're ten years out from that. Uh, and so I don't see anything that knits them together, except for the fact that with modern communications, we see all of these in real time. And, and I don't know if, you know, what happens in, you know, it's, it's very clear in the Arab Spring that we know people went out on the streets in Egypt because of what they saw in Tunisia on Al Jazeera. Yeah. We know that. They use the same slogans. And likewise, we know that people went out in Syria and Yemen and Bahrain and Libya because of what they saw in Egypt on Al Jazeera. Uh, 
and the timing was like, you know, it, it didn't take months or it, it, took, it took days, you know, maybe weeks. Uh, the slogans, as I said, were the same in many, in many instances. Uh, but I don't see that in this kind of, you know, span of, of protests across the region, except for maybe on, on the sense of, you know, greater global communications gives people the idea of, well, if they can do it in Santiago, why can't we do it in Hong Kong? Uh, do you, 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 you go, you're, you're more into the, into the, the modern communications stuff than I am, you know? I, I, I had to have our, our, our trusty assistant, Faith, who, who, who helps us put on the podcast, come and make sure that I could get into Zoom. And, and, and you and, did it great. You get right into Zoom. We only had to figure out how to turn your microphone on. It didn't even there take we go. There we go. <laughs> but without Faith, I would have been here yelling, going, do you want me to be louder? And you know, nobody would have heard me. <laughs> so yeah, I have a few thoughts. Um, so one of the... I read up a good bit on the, the protest as, as well, because it's, you know, one of the things that, that's been a popular, um, a kind of a prevalent stream of things being worried about as a millennial um, in our generation has been inequality. Yeah. Um, it's been one that kind of, I was kind of come up through the university with thinking about. And so my, my gut for some of this was inequality because some of it is like government raising fees, uh, but that certainly doesn't catch all of it, to your point. And then particularly the stuff in Bolivia um, in Hong Kong. I don't think, um, I mean, Hong Kong has pretty severe inequality, actually. But it's it's not, doesn't seem to be really what they were, what they seem to have been protesting about. Right. Um, right. And Bolivia has been, you know, Bolivia I read a little bit into is really interesting because the protests seem to be because Morales was, was removed. So it's Morales supporters being angry that they're, they're, their uh, leader had been removed from office for corruption. But before that, the, the anti-Morales people were in the streets pushing for him to leave. And that, that created the crisis that led him, led the army to intervene and, and, and Morales to leave. So what, what I think is kind of interesting about that is like just that particular one and then zoom back to, the, but this one stuck with me because of, because of that narrative and thinking about what's going on in our own country with potential backlash to say uh, impeachment and removal. Um, right. And thinking about all the kind of mass protests that have been more on kind of the left. Uh, there hasn't actually been that much in the U.S., but there have yeah. been protests uh, from the left sporadically. And then you could imagine if, um, say, no, Trump but the biggest right, the biggest mobilization was the women's march. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want to call that the left, but yeah, true. Yeah. It, it it it's you know it's a mobilization that's more about. Uh, specific issues with women, some of which are, uh, undoubtedly are economic inequality and, and, and economic rights, but those weren't exactly front and center. Yeah. So I think inequality like has to be an undercurrent theme, but maybe not a necessary right. and sufficient condition. Right. So another thing that I, you know, is... And plus, but, and, and that, but that can cut other ways too, because if you look at Brexit, right, it seems yeah. like people who felt like they were left out, right, were voting for Brexit. Yeah, yeah, uh, and 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 that's you know usually considered the right wing position. Yeah. So yeah. it's, but you're right. I think I think inequality inequality is an underlying theme. Certainly, uh, politics all over these days. And I think the uh, the other one that I thought of, and then I there's two that I, I've read some on that I want to just share. One of them I think is is interesting. One I, I think is kind of maybe not spot on, but it was just one I heard. 
So I think the, the human rights one, though, if you broadly define human rights as economic and political opportunity, and then you can kind of see people all over the world having, having those opportunities, those political and economic opportunities. And then you look at yourself and you have that social media and you have access to see these things playing out in the world. But what you see in your country is you're struggling to get by. All these other people seem to have the, the high life. And why, you know, why can't you have basic political rights? Take Hong Kong, like they could be extradited to China where the, the guilty rate is 99.99999, right? So that's a political rights issue they see us having in the, in the U.S. and other Western countries that they, that they want. Yeah. The economic insecurity playing out, you know, all over the, the world. I mean, this isn't just these countries phenomenon. Economic insecurity for large swaths of the population is going on in the U.S., for example. Um, sure. And so I, I think the, the human rights broadly construed in this kind of like, what is the contract between uh, government, private sector, um, and, and, and technology, really? I mean, I know that's my thing, so I don't want to overplay that. But, you know, technology is certainly changing these relationships and changing the relationship between the state and the citizens and the private sector. And some of it seems to me like we've got to come up with a new type of contract um, that. So tell, tell, tell me more about how you think technology plays into how does the greater, how does the, the, the way technology is developing in our economics and politics drive, drive people to protest? Yeah. So I think there's at least three. Um, there's just the, uh, um, the availability of information that is uh, global for most Places, most of these places. So I think it's um, I think it's access to information that you wouldn't have otherwise. I think it's the way in which um, social media in general has uh, highlighted the extremes and left open plenty of opportunities for um, for manipulation of the stream of information to yeah. people. And so many people use social media as their main source of news. It's like um, it's, it's really disturbing. The third, I think, is um, people can sense that um, their economic opportunities for lots, of, for lots of people are in question. And mm -hmm. so I think automation, um, without kind of being a full yanger over here or delving too much into um, to my own special interests, but I, I think people can kind of sense, you know, I'll take my to use a personal example, just take my dad, for example. He's been working with Lockheed Martin for on and off for 30 years, essentially, mm -hmm. maybe 25 years. And, you know, these new folks that are brought in, he's, the way they do their contracts, they don't have the same type of benefits. They don't have the same type of pay. Right. People, you know, Lockheed Martin, they used to be the secure class, secure job to the middle class. Those jobs that are left while they're dwindling, I mean, my dad will be replaced when he's when he retires. When they come in, the social contract between them and the private company is broken because the private company has been able to automate so many sets of their, their tasks and it, yeah. it, it does away with their bargaining power. And so you can see these trends, right? Since going back to the seventies, uh, global inequality has been decreasing, but within societies, which is people's reference points, right. uh, inequality has been increasing and increases in productivity haven't related with like increases in uh, purchasing power and, and resources. Right. And so I think a lot of people can, uh, can sense that it's, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of spilling over into the broader narrative too, but I think people understand that technology is part of what's playing that disruptive role to what kind of jobs and economic and political opportunities, right? I mean, all the stuff that's coming out about the, 
surveillance state, not just in China. I mean, China is the classic example, but they've been exporting it to Russia, who's been exporting it to Africa, and the U.S. has been doing some of our own worrisome versions of this. It's a surveillance state. I mean, I think there's hardly any place in London you can go that doesn't have a camera on it now. Exactly. It's what um, it's used for. You know, you trust the British government a bit more than you trust the Chinese government with this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, they have better feedback mechanisms. Yeah. <laughs> they can vote, uh, right. which is a good starting point. Um, unless, unless you think Brexit is dumb, in which case the vote was, a, you know, they shouldn't have been able to vote. But that's a whole different story. So, so this idea of technology is partially, you know, what we've talked about for a long while in this country about, about you know, what the internet means for politics and, and, and what instantaneous communication means for politics. But, but partially it's the way technology affects the economy. Correct. Yep. Okay. That would and, how, and, and then how technology affects government. But I haven't seen, and that's where I think I'd push back the most on you, because although I think those are really serious issues, I haven't seen people get up in arms about them, mm. right? Uh, people aren't up in arms, for example, about privacy. They aren't, they aren't up in arms about their data, right? They aren't up in arms about the fact that the government has all their data or Google has all their data. It seems like at least the, the attitude of many people in my circles is, yeah, I know they've got all my stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Well, and I think that is, so I think my reference point, uh, unsurprisingly, given our cultural backgrounds, is a little is a little different coming from people who are maybe a little more suspicious <laughs> in general as their, as their uh, default and being around our Texas folks who are very suspicious of federal government as well. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I mean... The federal government when they want to be. Exactly. Well, that's true. And then, and, and then when, their, when their social security check comes in, they love the federal government. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. And they, yeah, there's there's... There's a, there's a lot of um, uh, cognitive dissonance. Yeah, exactly. Cognitive dissonance is, is the way to put it. So, yeah, I mean, I, um, I think it's an open question as to how much uh, people care about government's role. The, the, the pieces that, um, uh, that I think are, gonna, are going to um, play out at first are going to be some of the warfare stuff, but that doesn't really apply to what's going on yeah. right now. That's a whole different topic. Um, there is some kind of talking within our field, within kind of public administration and governance. And uh, I've been talking about this with a few people that the, that these tools will allow for different forms of control that should be worrisome, but I don't think they're actually driving. I don't think that piece is what's driving um, the protests in any way. Um, The the two other things I wanted to say on this is one, there's an interesting piece about how one common theme is that in general, these protests are leaderless, that these new movements, and maybe that's not that different from 2011, but it is, um, a component of it that there's no specific leader that can be targeted or discredited, which has, which speaks, I think a little bit to the use of technology within the protest and the decentralized tools they're able to use to plan things, upvoting and downvoting things, which is kind of interesting. But the final one that I saw that I thought was odd that I wanted to throw out your way was that was a suggestion that people are um, bored. Isn't that great? Boredom. Boredom Boredom. is what's taking people to the to the streets. Ennui. You don't usually think ennui leads to protest, but so tell me what the connection is. If I'm bored, if I'm bored, I turn on the television. (laughs) So the 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 argument is that there are no battles anymore in society. That you're not out kind of fighting for your family or fighting for the nation as a normal kind of person in society. Things are pretty safe and secure in a lot of these countries. Your normal day-to-day life is boring. And so you're looking for an opportunity to be a part of a narrative. 
And so if given the opportunity to be a part of protests, if there's a spark, all these people have all this time on their hands and want to be a part of something, then flood the streets. Yeah. I'm not buying. <laughs> Me neither, but I thought it was an interesting... I'm, not, I'm just not buying. I mean, I... I... <laughs> So I thought that was a certain extent. Technology gives you ways to to waste your time in a in a more creative and interesting and and addictive way than has ever been the case before. I mean, you know, how many times do we just walk around campus and just see everybody on their phones, right? I mean, I, I yeah, I'm not buying boredom. I'm not buying boredom either. I'm not buying boredom. I mean, and and if you're going out against the Chinese security services, right? Boredom. You, you, it's not because you're bored. It's because you are mad, right? It's because you're mad. I think so. That, I mean, that's uh, boredom didn't strike me. Now, maybe you have time to be mad because you're not busy fighting for survival in some of yeah, these places. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll grant you that, you know, uh, it's, it, it's very rare that you have peasant rebellions, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you do have peasant rebellions, they turn everything over, right? That's the Russian Revolution. That's the Chinese Revolution. That's... Peasant, if, 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 if the peasants decide to throw down their rakes and their hose and start burning stuff down, the system collapses. Yeah, but, and it's yeah, mostly, mostly they're, you know, fighting for their daily, they're working for their daily bread. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was an interesting hypothesis. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't buy it. I don't, yeah, uh, not buying. I don't think that people are, actually, I actually just don't believe people are bored. I mean, it's, you know, we have our own sort of, none of these protests we've talked about have been coming out of the U.S. True. I don't, I don't know. I know very few uh, uh, bored, bored people. Bored. I know people who are upset about things. I know people who have good things going for them and bad things going for them. And I know people who don't like their economic situation or their personal situation. But um, I mean, maybe some retired people that I know that uh, have a good are bit bored. of money and they're just hanging out. I mean, maybe they're bored. I don't, I don't know what these people I don't see them on the streets. No. That's and my generation. I think in, this ties back finally to impeachment, which will be a, a way to bring us back home at the end. People are so not bored that I don't think people are watching the hearings. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I think you were right that people saw what they wanted to see out of the, the hearings. But I think most people just read headlines. They read and headlines so, and watch clips. They watch clips. And so I would encourage anyone in our audience to – to go to some kind of reputable uh, source that's just showing the clips, not the commentary. Right. Um, I watched this on like, I think it was ABC or it could have been yeah. New York Times. Just you can do it at the New York Times. You can do it at the Washington Post. Yeah, and the Wall Street Journal probably has something similar. And watch the highlights from day two, three, four, and five in particular. Yeah. Because I've been following all the headlines and it, the headlines paint a different story than watching, watching humans interact as this is unfolding. Right. And you can see, I think, uh, I think a lot of people could see a lot more about what was going on if they, since they're not, if they weren't so busy and they could stop and actually just take these, these hearings in. Because it was, you know, coming from someone who follows this stuff closely and reading a bunch of headlines, I have to say the hearings were pretty jarring to me um, in the way in which it, it didn't fit with the national narrative. Yeah. There was so much of like, you know, which we've done a little bit of today, like who's winning and what does it mean for the bottom line? Yeah. But when you, when you watch it, just as like a, a, an American citizen who's interested in your country and broadly what's going on in the world, just watch them. Try to just, to just watch all the players, see how they behave, and then see what that says to you about what's going on. And then draw your own conclusions. Justin, we've got we've to gotta wrap up. Happy we Thanksgiving. It is, and it's been an hour, right? Hey, one breaking news for you, Greg. Um, Donald McGahn must comply with the White House subpoena, court rules and case 
that could affect impeachment inquiry. And then, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. So you know, <laughs> it'll all end up the Supreme Court. But before all that happens, I'm going to, to have Thanksgiving with my family in Delaware. Mm-hmm. You're having Thanksgiving where? I'll be having Thanksgiving in Georgia. In Georgia, I'm okay. Here. So we're, we're both going to the ancestral homeland. Where we are. Thanksgiving. And we'll be back in College Station on Monday, I imagine. And I'll be back in College Station on Saturday, and I'll see you on Monday. All right. Looking forward to it, Greg. A pleasure as always. Look out for our live recordings on December 3rd at 6 and December 10th at 5. And come join us for the fun. Thank you for following along. Downtown Uncorked and Historic uh, Brian. Hope to see you there. All right. Bye-bye, everybody.